You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bolchevich. And now, here's Jay. Hello, you there? I'm here. We're going live. Oh, my volume. You there? We are here. We are here. Okay. Thank you. Roll. Roll. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're trying to connect with Jay Bolshevich. Please stand by. Jay, are you with me? I am there. Are we are we live now on the air? Well, let's just go ahead and roll it, and we'll uh, edit it later. So here we go. Here we go. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bolchevich. Good afternoon, and my apologies for being a couple minutes late this afternoon. I was running out of a Homes for Good board meeting and straight into doing the show. So it was one of those things where just uh, not enough time in the day sometimes. Back-to-back-to-back meetings, it's just part of being a county commissioner. But we got a lot to talk about today, as it's another beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest. And... I want to just mention that you know you're listening to the Bose Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Eugene today because I had to run out of one meeting and into my office to do the show today rather than being out of Elmira. And uh, I'm your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner. And as always, you are in control of what goes on in this show. And if you want to get in on the show, you can just call us 646 and if my sorry, I'm having a six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. Thank you, thank you, Robin. And and press one that lets Robin, my call screener and producer organizer, know you want to get in on the show because uh, if it weren't for her, the show wouldn't happen. And um, you know you got to let her know you want to get in by pressing that one. So, um, God, my internet is slow. I'm sorry. Um, this is what happens when you're when you're working out of out of different environments. Usually, I'm direct connected into the internet and I'm flying, but today nothing's coming up fast at all, and uh, it's causing me a lot of headaches here. 
So sorry for the glitchy show to start, but we'll we'll get into it. As always, shows under your control. Just give us a call and you can control the topic. If not, there is so much to talk about today. I know we're not going to get to all of it today during the show, um, but you can call in and change the subject anytime. But boy, is there so much going on because it's been two weeks since I've done a live show, two board meetings, all sorts of meetings, a homes for good meeting. Um, got all sorts of things that have happened. We passed our final budget in the Board of Commissioners. Um, we could talk about budgets. Uh, we talked, we did a little courthouse funding action. We passed a five-year capital improvement plan. But, you know, some of the bigger things that happened were we talked about housing a lot the last couple of weeks. We talked about the City of Eugene's project to establish urban reserves and frankly, just how disappointed I am in how slow they're moving um, as usual. And then also this week, uh, last week, we approved accessory dwelling units in urban growth boundaries across the county. And that's gonna be a new tool in, in adding front doors for housing in this county. But probably the biggest news that's out there that everybody's talking about is the Supreme Court. First, we get the Janus decision this morning, which if folks aren't familiar with Janus versus ASME that came out of the state of Illinois, it was basically a First Amendment um, claim against ASME by an employee that wanted to opt, that opted out of being a member, but was being forced to pay dues through a state law that required them to pay dues even if you're not a member of the union. And those dues get used for a lot of political purposes through the union. And basically the claim was it violated his First Amendment rights in that it was forcing him to participate in speech um, that he didn't agree with. So um, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 split decision ruled in favor of the, the Janice, who was the employee that opted out of the union and said the state could not forcibly withhold um, union dues from that non-union opt-out employee, which is and only applies in public um, employee unions. Uh, it's not across all unions, um, but this was really a landmark decision in a lot of ways because it reversed 40 years of court president that basically allowed for the forcible collection of union dues in public sector um, employment from people who didn't really want to be a member of the public sector employee union. Um, so it's really going to change the landscape of how these um, unions uh, are going to be able to finance campaigns, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I, which, which is kind of interesting. I have actually gotten union contributions my campaigns in the past. Um, and uh, it's you know not that they've been large but my opponents have actually gotten much larger ones so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts local politics but it also brings up a quandary for uh, public employers all of a sudden uh, now this decision's taking place do we have to suddenly change some of our policies because we have you know basically under oregon law we're collecting dues for the unions through payroll deductions from employees and we write checks to the unions once a month. And now if we do that for an employee that opted out but 
but is paying, quote, the fair share um, union dues, are we suddenly going to be violating that employee's constitutional First, First Amendment constitutional rights by um, collecting those dues and transferring them to the union? And are we liable then federal court for violating their First Amendment rights? So we all have to have some discussions with our legal counsel and try and figure out what's going on there. Um, but it's really uh, an interesting decision that is definitely going to have some far-ranging impacts across this country. And then after they announce the Janus decision, one of the Supreme Court justices announces his retirement. Um, Anthony Kennedy decides he's going to retire, and now there's an uproar about whether or not Trump should be able to appoint a um, replacement because, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, uh, yeah, after what happened at the end of the Obama administration, where they held up a, a, the processing of his appointee till after the election, um, you know that you know this is quote in a quote an election year, so maybe it should be held up till next year, um, but potential election year with a lame duck president. Uh, so it's kind of an, kind of interesting. There'll be lots of talk about that. Um, in the future, uh, the, the uh, majority leader of the Senate, uh, McConnell, has said he will schedule hearings uh, this fall to, to secure that appointment so that when they start meeting in October, there will be a full Supreme Court. So really, um, really interesting news that's driven from the federal side today, but there is some very local implications about at least the ASME Janus decision in that it will um, change how we deal with unions here in the state of Oregon, because the state of Oregon is one of those states that uh, requires the forcible collection of union dues from non-participating employees. So that decision has in Oregon. So we can talk about unions and all that stuff. In fact, you know, speaking to ask me, there's something that, you know, happened in a couple board meetings ago in this two weeks where I, I didn't do a live show last week. And I didn't do a live show because I was down in Riddle, Oregon, touring a cross laminated timber um, production facility that DR Johnson uh, has put in down in their mill down there. And we'll get to that later. But two weeks ago, board meeting, uh, we also took some action relative to AFSCME where we actually approved some midterm uh, market adjustments to some select positions um, that were part of a, an agreement that, that got the strike to end uh, last fall. And basically, uh, we looked at some, you know, where AFSCME picked so many classifications we we're going to look into, did market studies, three person panel that, that voted on, on changes in grades, et cetera, to, relative to the market. And um, we approved the general unit and nurses units uh, midterm market adjustments uh, a couple weeks ago. And that kind of closed the door on, on the whole uh, issues that were surrounding the strike. Um, those market adjustments, um, I, I don't have the total in front of me, but they were in, you know, couple hundred thousand dollars total cost over the life of the contract, um, nowhere near the difference that was between um, 
AFME's final and best offer um, prior to the strike and the county's final and best offer prior to the strike. Um, those differences were in the millions, not in the hundreds of thousands, um, tens of millions, in fact. Uh, and so, you know, we did we did sign the the, the memorandum of agreement to, to to do these midterm adjustments. And, you know, even with adding those on there, you know, we save significant money by kind of um, sticking to our guns and 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 uh, working to get a, a fair but equitable contract for both the employees and the taxpayers with that strike. So um, that was kind of the, the closing the door on that. And then here we have, you know, 10 days later after we closed the door on that 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 episode in Lane County Labor Relations, uh, the Supreme Court's throwing a whole monkey wrench in the whole thing again. So it'll be interesting to see um, what we need to do as a county to adhere and and the state needs to do to adhere to the Supreme Court's decision um, and, and for not violating folks uh, First Amendment rights because you know they're part of freedom of speech is the freedom not to participate in speech and to force people to participate in speech is um, yeah, probably not one of the greatest things uh, in the history of our country to to have, you know, part of what we're doing here. So throwing a couple things out there that are going on. I got a whole bunch of stuff I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about that cross laminated timber housing. I'm going to talk a little bit about Independence Day some on the show because the show falls on Independence Day next week. And I going to call an audible here with Robin. I haven't even talked to her about this, but I was planning on not having a show next week because I don't know about you, but I like to celebrate Independence Day. And um, I'm sure you all do too. And probably don't want to be tied to your cell phone or a computer or somewhere listening to me blather on about county politics and policies and what's happening in the county or across the nation politically or governmental wise. Uh, you want to celebrate with your family uh, our nation's independence from the king, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll come back two weeks from now with a regular Bo's Nose show live. But what I'd like to do is invite you to call in and you know change the subject, or just let me know what you think of what's going on with the Supreme Court or anything else I've thrown out there at six four six. 721-9887. Just press one and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887 and just press one. So last week um, when we were normally would have the show, I was probably riding back from Riddle, Oregon after getting a chance to go down there with a bunch of other um, county uh, staff and a couple other commissioners, uh, even some folks from the University of Oregon's architecture school, school of architecture, um, down to D.R. Johnson's mill in Riddle, where they have this cross laminated timber production facility. And I tell you, it's really fascinating piece of technology. The whole idea that you could build these, um, these, these 
huge panels um, out of basically two by fours that are, you know, laid together and glued together in, in opposing directions, 90 degree directions in layers, kind of like plywood, you know, where they lay the, layer the veneer down and, and the grains in opposite directions. Similar thing, but you're basically doing it with these two by fours. Um, actually, they're doing it with two by sixes. Um, so you can just imagine how massive these panels can get uh, as they do that. Uh, you know, laying, you know, um, three layers or five layers thick of these of these um, boards. Pretty impressive um, facility. They can do up to a 10 by uh, 37 foot panel now and they're getting ready to expand their press to do 10 by 42 and these panels um, are not only you know they can be structural um, you know the thicker ones can are load bearing and can actually build multi-story buildings with them and the thinner ones they use for floor uh, and ceiling panels it, it's really interesting technology and then they They've got this huge machine there, um, you know, what they call a CNC machine, which is, uh, I'm going to get this incorrect, but um, it's a computer numeric controlled machining, uh, I believe is the correct, what, what CNC as in, N as in Nancy, computer numeric control machining. And you, you probably, seen some of these on on you know as a you know television when they're talking you know um in you know at machine shops or whatever usually doing you know um, metal parts or or doing plastic and and wood but they're usually small you know and you're making something that's the size of a car part this thing is massive and can actually machine these 10 by 42 humongous slabs of, of cross-laminated timber wood, and they have, you know, a 36-inch circular saw that can move on a gimbal to cut bevels and turn different angles and stuff like that. Huge drill bits for poking holes through this stuff for connections and um, routers and all that so they can um, round edges where they need to round edges in, in openings and, and um, just amazing piece of technology. And the computer can actually know if that slab's laid slightly skewed on the bed, it will actually change the angle on the cut so everything's running parallel to the edges of the, the slab and, and, and squared and everything. That machine in itself is a million dollars, which is just an amazing investment in, in technology. And it's basically driven by one guy and a, and a, and a keyboard with a couple of large display screens as to you know, what's going on with the programming of what's going to be done to that particular slab. Just, you know, amazing, you know, where you go from, you know, computer-aided design, there's probably, you know, on the front end of, of doing a building out of this cross-laminated timber, it's all being done on computers, and then they, they model it to get all the pieces fitting together and everything 
and then all that breaks down to each individual panel's design and that gets you know put put in through the system they make the panels up and then it ends up on this cnc machine which takes from that original cad design of the building and 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 actually machines out each one of the custom panels to fit right where it's supposed to go on the building so you end up you know just basically assembling the building off of uh, trucks <laughs> with cranes pretty wild stuff and while i was there there's at the tail end of the building there was a stack of panels that were all marked osu with a bunch of codes as to where they went i guess uh, in the building and those were the panels that were actually going into the new um, forestry building up at OSU, which was kind of exciting to see them sitting there uh, on the shipping end of the, the the assembly line, getting ready to go up and actually get put in in Corvallis. Um, so it was really a pretty interesting tour, but it's amazing. Uh, some of it's very automated, some of it's um, not as automated, but you know they've got where they make these huge long 40 foot boards out of these two by sixes by finger joining the ends of them and gluing them together um, in one long board. So there's you know an assembly line to do that portion of it. And of course they also use those long finger jointed boards for glue lamb uh, beams, which they also do specialize there at the DR Johnson facility. So they're, you know, not only are they doing the panels, but they're doing these huge um, glue lamp beams that, that can support stands and everything else so you can ha basically have a building that's that's you know multi-story building that's you know all almost all wood with some steel connecting connecting plates and rods etc um pretty amazing uh piece of building but you can think about you know um how much carbon gets stored in a cross laminated timber building and just also think about how much carbon isn't utilized in the production of concrete and, and rebar and other steel that that wood replaces because concrete production is, is really heavily um, carbon intensive. It's a lot of energy to, to make concrete. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to, to just get an idea how much one of our top 10 carbon producing industries is a concrete production facility in Northeast Oregon in this state. So as they're looking at some of the cap and trade legislation, which is something else I, we can talk about here because I also went to a cap and trade uh, legislative planning meeting at the Association of Oregon and Counties last week and uh, saw that list of the top uh, carbon producers in the state that might be um, regulated under this cap and, and quote cap and invest legislation they're considering um, and it, it's pretty interesting that there are quite a few in Lane County and almost every one of them is a timber producing facility so it's kind of interesting to think you know here these these uh, mills are you know they use the fair you know they're they're talking about just how much carbon they generate um, in their production facilities, but they're not crediting them with the carbon they actually sequester in the lumber they produce. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that, whether they actually get to credit that in the um, in the whole um, cap and trade scheme they've got going, whether uh, mills get 
pulled out of that or not. But um, lots to talk about there, but that DR Johnson facility was really interesting and really thankful to the folks down there at, at DR Johnson for taking the time. It's really interesting. I got to sit on the bus with the uh, gentleman from the School of Architecture uh, at the U of O and, and talk about um, all sorts of issues within architecture and built environments and housing and the use of um, cross laminated timber and, and um, it was a, a fun drive down and back just to be sitting next to somebody like that and also just a fun tour um, and, and an impressive tour to look at what might be the future of building construction uh, or at least a competitive um, piece of building construction to steel and concrete in this country as it has become in Europe um, over the last uh, 20 years where they're actually building you know 12 story buildings out of wood in in Europe in fact maybe even taller so that's what I was doing last week when I should have been doing the show next week I'm going to be celebrating Independence Day which kind of you know brings me to it and my an annual annual little rant I just kind of have to get to a little bit which is I prefer to call it Independence Day, not the 4th or the 4th of July. It just happens to fall on the 4th or the 4th of July. But we don't celebrate the day, the 4th. We celebrate our independence. And it's amazing. Um, you know, Robin, our call screener and producer extraordinaire, sent, you know, got me to, to look up this one uh, YouTube video of a uh, of this one guy that's somewhat of a comedian and a political commentator uh, interviewing people about, do you know what we're celebrating today? I mean, he's going walking around a beach on California on the 4th of July, asking people if they know what, you know, some people knew it was Independence Day. And then he went around and said, so today we're celebrating our independence. Can you tell us who we're celebrating our independence from? And, you know, it was amazing. People were guessing things like Canada. It, you know, all right, folks, Independence Day, we declared our independence from England and the king. And, and you know, go back and read the declaration maybe on, on the 4th of July, particularly the second paragraph of the declaration, which is probably one of the most impressive pieces of writing uh, in history and and for that day and age you know was was just groundbreaking we hold these truths to be self-evident of course they're writing today they would have said all humans are created equal that was almost heresy at that point in most of societies in europe you know, you had the, you know, the the royals and the, you know, the the titled gentry that were much more above everybody else, you know, class-wise, and were somehow or another entitled to that through heredity. And in fact, the royalty in Europe mostly claim their right to rule through 
you know, some, you know, uh, you know, granted from God, basically. And, and one of the things the declaration stated was the people form governments to protect their inalienable rights endowed by their creator, which is a whole other concept that was just groundbreaking for that day and age. Which brings me to another subject somewhat, which is just that whole statement right there. We form government to protect our inalienable rights. I actually had somebody send me something in the mail recently that had it, it's it's this um, people's policy proposed people's policy and budget ballot for 2018. I don't know who puts this out, but one of the first things it says is the purpose of government is to is to provide for social needs first. Is one of their concepts. That's not the purpose of government. The purpose of government is to secure our rights. You know, I, and it's amazing to me that somebody could actually think that supplying needs is the purpose of government, not securing rights. So that's my annual rant on Independence Day. Please think about what you're celebrating. It's not all about, you know, hamburgers and a day off and, and uh, setting off a few sprinklers and fireworks, sparklers and fireworks um, and whatever else goes on on Independence Day or participating in the local parade or, you know, pancake breakfast out in Harrisburg or whatever you're doing um, for the 4th of July, the parade down in, in Cresswell. It's really about how a bunch of people got together and decided that England was abusing their powers over the peoples of the colonies, and they chose to declare their independence. But they didn't just declare their independence to set up another kingdom that would abuse people's powers. They declared their independence on the basis that governments should be formed by the people to to secure their rights, which was just, you know, absolutely groundbreaking in 1776, and absolutely is, you know, something that's not common throughout the world. I can think of multiple countries that have governments that were not formed secure rights. And in fact, the governments are there to suppress the rights of the people. So be be thankful on the fourth for those groundbreaking founding fathers of this nation that got together and signed that declaration and and really changed the whole thinking about government on this planet in many ways. So 
This is the Bose News Show again, and I am your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner. And, you know, we'll talk about whatever we talk about. If you'll give us a call here at 646-721-9887, just press 1 if you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1. Otherwise, we'll talk about what Jay wants to talk about. And I just scratched the surface on a couple of the things I mentioned earlier, and maybe I'll get into them a little bit more in depth here on the second half of the program. Unless you call in again at 646-721-9887 and just press one. Sorry, it's been a long day today. Um, so we did um, a couple weeks ago pass our final budget. I just want to remind folks, it's a budget for fiscal year 18-19. It starts on July 1st and goes through next June 30th of 2019. And once again, for probably the third year in a row, we passed a structurally balanced budget that didn't require us to make cuts to services, didn't use reserves to fund our programs, and once again, we're not collecting the full amount of our sheriff's levy that we could collect. We had to bring it up a little bit this year, but we're still not collecting the full 55 cents per thousand. So something I'm pretty proud of that we did that. And at the same time, we managed to save enough money in some of our uh, reserve funds that we were able to transfer excess refer reserves out to be utilized to pay down some of our PERS debt and, and, and take advantage of some state matching funds that were made available through a piece of legislation that the state passed last year. And at the same time, set aside $2.1 million to take advantage of any housing um, funding that might come along where we can use that as match and leverage to get some housing projects going. So not only did we pass a structurally balanced budget but we also working, you know, by saving a bunch of money in some other areas, reinvesting that savings to save more money on our future PERS liability, and also are going to leverage $2 million in trying to get a lot more than $2 million of new housing built in this county. So really, you know, didn't make the news. There was no news media there, hasn't received any news coverage, really, our budget has has but you know pretty impressive that we're able to do that i guess you don't make much news passing a budget that is balanced and is is really uh doing the right things financially um that doesn't make news you only make news if you're having to make massive budget cuts or you're borrowing from reserve playing some other budget tricks and that seems to make the news um but the good good budget behavior doesn't make the news so I uh, just want to highlight that a little bit. The other thing I wanted to talk about in a little bit more depth was the whole idea of this urban reserves issue. And we really. Um, Great. Really. Uh, you know, haven't talked about this too much other than when we mentioned Envision Eugene in the past sometimes, but one of the things that came about to get Envision Eugene over the finish line was this compromise agreement with the home builders 
that once they were done with the Eugene, they were going to get on to doing a couple things in short succession after they, they adopted Envision Eugene. One was to get to revising the housing standards for needed housing in the Eugene Code so they are clear and objective standards for needed housing. And, and that would then help go back and relook at some of their housing, their uh, residential lands inventory to see if it really meets those clear and objective standards for development. But that, you know, that's supposed to be going on. That's supposed to happen within a year of adoption. And then within a couple of years of adoption, they were supposed to get to having some urban reserves def defined and adopted. And urban reserves are supposed to be a 50, somewhere between a 30 and 50 year supply of land. And, and the city of Eugene is wisely looking at the 50 year horizon because that's really um, the best way to, to plan for that. And what urban reserves are is, is once you, you kind of define what's your population going to be in 50 years, land is it going to take for that those folks to live and be employed and and uh, be able to shop whatever, schools, parks, everything. How many acres more do you need in, in, your, um, in your city eventually to plan for that growth? And then drawing a boundary that includes that number of acres and basically saying, we're reserving this land to be part of the city sometime in the future. It's not part of the urban growth boundary. It's not going to be part of the city in the next 20 years, but it's going to be part of the city sometime in the next 50 years. And it's kind of really kind of helps everything else get planned. Because once you kind of draw that 50 year boundary, then you've got an idea of where's the growth going to be in the future. So that's where the traffic is going to get generated. How's that impact the existing? transportation system, what kind of transport structure are you going to have to plan for major collectors and arterials out in that new area? Uh, how are you going to serve that with sewer and water, storm drainage and all those things? So you can start really doing some master planning uh, for all of these capital infrastructure investments over the next 50 years, just on a, a real, you know, um, high level of, of that. And then as, as you look at your 20-year supply and have to move the UGB, it makes it much easier moving the UGB out into that, that urban reserve is almost an administrative function. You don't have to go through the, the nine years of wrestling they did with Envision Eugene to ultimately not move the um, UGB very much at all. Uh, they didn't move it at all for housing, and they only moved it a little bit for lands and um, commercial industrial or employment lands, as they call it. So that's what was kind of promised to happen in a couple of years after um, they completed the Envision Eugene process. And that was all set out in a memo uh, to the uh, city council back in 2015. They finally get um, final approval of the state for Vision Eugene in January of this year, 2018, and they're basically starting the clock from that time. And and all they're getting to in their their timeline 
is not that they're going to be complete with urban reserves two years afterwards, that they're going to have the first draft ready, basically to start the approval process in two years. So I was a little disappointed with city staff and, it, and asked them to do whatever they could to speed that timeline up, because really, at the same time, they're going to have some new population uh, projections for the state um, coming up, and they need and with the revised um, clear and objective housing standards, they need to go back and relook at the at the housing inventory that's existing inside the UGB, and then look to move the UGB possibly in about three years from now. And if we're just starting the process of adopting urban reserves two years from now, we're not going to be able to just move the UGB three years from now. We'll still be working on adopting the urban reserves. So I I'm, was a little bit concerned that the city seems to be uh, moving at a snail's pace um, with something they agreed to 15, knew they were going to be doing this work and seemed like they, they waited to even start basically until 2018 when they could have been working on a lot of this all along and actually had been allocated funds from the city council to start that work after that 2015 memo got adopted by the city council so really seems like everywhere we turn around uh, the city of eugene seems to be hostile to new housing Yet at the same time, they're the first place that complains about the housing crisis and the homeless and all that. It just it it's a a um, schizophrenic uh, municipal personality that I just don't get. You know where they get this uh, they they won't move the urban growth boundary. They it, they did everything they could to keep from moving the urban growth boundary to add residential land. They're dragging their feet about the urban reserves now. They, when it came to the accessory dwelling units that the state of Oregon mandated them to add into their code and, and specifically said, we want you, these are mandated and the only thing you really have control over is siting and, and design standards, not whether they get approved or not. The city's said, well, we already have them allowed in, in our R1 codes. But what they didn't acknowledge was their current code is so restrictive, it makes it nearly impossible to add an accessory dwelling unit because it's not just siting and design. They have things like it has to be owner-occupied to have an accessory dwelling unit, which is really one difficult to enforce after one's been built, but it also really limits um, somebody that might own an existing rental house and wants to add an accessory dwelling unit to that rental house, which would add another housing unit to the city's housing stock. You know, so it's really, you know, all the concern that the city council seems to have for the homeless population. At the same time, they're allowing their staff to, to maintain policies that are hostile to housing accessory dwelling units, dragging their feet on urban reserves. It's just, you know, it's really kind of amazing to me 
how there's so much hostility to adding housing, let alone just the NIMBY side of things. You know, there's an article in the paper about this Lombard apartments on River Road and how the neighbors are all in an uproar because somebody is actually going to develop a piece of property the way it was zoned years ago. And it's been zoned that way for years to be R2. And the fact that the developer is going to actually zone it to the, the density that it was designed for seems to have everybody upset there. But, you know, it's been designated R2 for a number of years, and it was designated that way in a public planning process, um, you know, no different than Envision Eugene and all that. You know, so I, I kind of don't, it, it's amazing, you know, that the, that folks can, on one hand, show such great concern for, you know, housing costs and homelessness and everything else, and on the other hand, be so, um, have so much fear of new housing. And you know, not in my neighborhood, not in this city, it's got to happen somewhere else. It is happening somewhere else. We had a presentation a few weeks ago from Brian Rooney, who is the uh, regional economist for the state of Oregon's Department of Revenue. And he presented a uh, table to us of population change from 2016 to 2017, uh, July 1 to July 1, um, and where it broke down by different cities and regions in the county. And the fastest growing area of population in Lane County is not any of the cities. It's unincorporated Lane County picked up 2% population in that 12 months and added 2,000 people outside of city limits. No other city grew that fast in percent of population or a number. The city of Eugene added less than 2,000 people during that time period and grew at barely 1%. You know, there are other cities that, that that grew faster, but they're so much smaller. The number of people they added was less. But you know, when you have cities that are restricting housing, it ends up in rural areas, which is not what our statewide planning goals really were planning for. So it's kind of you know the same people also that complain about you know the plight of the homeless talk constantly about sprawl. Well, these anti-housing attitudes that they have are creating that sprawl as we had 2,000 more people move into rural Lane County outside of cities over that 12-month period because that's where they can find housing. So really need the city of Eugene to focus on that urban reserve project, speed it up, move it ahead, do whatever they have to do, get those those clear and objective needed housing standards done and turn the corner on this fear of adding housing and understand that the pop, you know, unless, you know, there's some magic bullet they have that they can suddenly build a wall around the state of Oregon or the city of Eugene and control the population growth of the city that way, the people are coming. There's just a, background growth rate in migration into the state and um, you know birth rate of the population and everything else you can't change the fact that our population will grow 
unless you've got some kind of policy. And I guess, I guess if they want to build the wall and get California to pay for it, um, you know, Governor Brown can figure out how to do that um, to get, you know, the other Governor Brown to pay for the wall. <laughs> That'd be an interesting summit. Uh, you know, that's the only way they're not going to have the need for the housing. So somehow or another, we got to get beyond this fear of adding housing and figure out how we're going to accommodate this growth of people over the next 50 years and do it in a logical fashion. But we need to not drag our heels because the fact that we're so far behind in supplying the housing is driving the housing cost up at a rate far exceeding uh, wage growth and inflation. And it's really causing a major issue in economic growth, which is one of the things that Brian Rooney identified. It's one of the reasons he was talking about population growth was the fact that housing and workforce availability are actually one of the things that's slowing our economy down. One of the things he talked about was we actually have leveled off in our growth of our economy in the state. And they're predicting, I think, a 2% growth in the state GDP over the next year. And um, possibly having a uh, um, decrease in growth of, uh, and, and a recession possibly two years out. And, and one of the instigators of that is this lack of um, lack of uh, housing and lack of workforce ability to grow and what that's going to do to kind of suppress our economy. Of course, there are other things that could shock us into a recession sooner. We can talk about trade policies on some other sh on a show maybe later, um, because that that could be a whole show in itself. Um, I'm not sure I quite agree with uh, where the administration's going with some of their trade policies. Um, the only people that pay tariffs are your citizens, not the country you're trading them against. Uh, it's the end consumer of the product that tariffs being charged on, which is U.S. citizens pay those tariffs. So punishing our citizens uh, for the misdeeds of another country is kind of a weird thing to do. So, but that's a whole other topic. But we have about seven or eight minutes left in the Bo's Nose show here. If you want to get on the conversation, it's 646-721-9887. Just press one and you can get in on the conversation here late on the Bo's Nose show. And Otherwise... Dave Speaking of uh, punishing, um, I have a quick little topic. Sure, Robin. Do you know what July 1st is? It, <laughs> it's something that affects every Oregonian starting July 1st. Yeah, yeah, you're going to see your paycheck go down a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's part of the uh, Oregon Transportation Package Taxes and the statewide statewide transit tax um, starts on July 1st. And as I'm reading the uh, uh, from the Oregon Department of Revenue, good place to start information on this, uh, so some of the other quirks of it, it's not just the, was the one-tenth of one percent. It also states, like, for example, if you're a truck driver, and as long as you're driving through the state, no problem. But if you pick up you create any income from this state, then you got to pay the tax. So 
you run a business, Jay, how much more is it going to cost you to keep all this paperwork? Oh, I don't know. And it's, you know, we have employees, so it's, it's going to be, you know, adding that, that deduction to our employees' paychecks and, and our, our personal paychecks. I don't know necessarily, um, as it's an income tax, it won't it won't affect our business as far as you know whether we sell a magazine subscription to an Oregon resident or whether we sell it to a Washington resident. Um, that's that's not you know it's it's taxing our our uh, it's a payroll uh, income tax. So I don't think it'll quite affect that. But what it's going to be difficult for say an out of state trucking company or any um, company that has employees that go in and out of the state to track um, whether or not they have to actually pay the one you know the 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 one one thousandth um, payroll tax uh, collect that from their employees paychecks and then distribute it back to the state of Oregon it's going to be fun paperwork for those folks um, but as an in-state it's, there's no question my employees are going to be paying the full boat on that. Well, the two main bullet points on the front page is wages of Oregon residents, regardless of where the work is performed, and wages of non-residents who perform services in Oregon. So, in other words, if you're if you got a house here in Oregon and you're working in the oil fields, guess what? You also get to contribute. Yeah, and that's kind of been that you know that's part of that whole thing where. Um, commuting back and forth from uh, Washington State into Oregon or Oregon into Washington State there up in the Vancouver uh, Portland area. Um, yeah, if you're if you're a Portland resident and you're going over and working in in Vancouver, you actually pay you still pay Oregon income taxes. Um, so if, even if you're temporarily a resident of North Dakota working in the in the Bakken oil fields um, and you maintain a permanent residency here in Oregon, you're, you're still going to be paying Oregon income tax, which means you'll get your one one thousandth payroll tax deduction um, taken out. Exactly. So the question is, is that, um, like I say, we got the bicycle excise tax, which started January 1st, 2018, the vehicle privilege tax, January 1st, 2018, the vehicle use tax, and then now this one. So what's next? Uh, I think this kind of is a, the last tax out of that particular bill. But you know, who knows what's next? You know, that, that's that's you know, one of the reasons why um, Initiative Petition 31 was being circulated, and they actually submitted um, 145,000 signatures to the Secretary of State today uh, to get that on the ballot, which is basically going to say takes a three-fifths majority to pass any sort of revenue increase, fees, uh, removal of a tax um, uh, exemption or whatever. If it increases the state revenue, it has to have a supermajority, which is kind of one of the arguments about the bill that um, removed the, that got rid of the um, Trump um, tax break and kind of made that back up. Um, from uh, the so, uh, sole proprietors right. and, and business owners in this in this state, um, 
that was one of the that's kind of what brought that to a boil was that was a huge increase in state revenues and they did it with a simple majority well, yeah. that's the same thing during the obama era where they uh the stimulus package the oregonians were supposed to get a percentage of that and somehow the state of oregon managed to uh, take it themselves and from what i understand they want to figure out a way to do the same thing with the trump tax breaks they can do it but they somehow they managed to do it yeah yeah yep well yeah that's just kind of you know seems like the state of oregon's constantly hungry for more revenue partly because they keep inventing new ways to use it in expansions of the programs rather than looking like lane county did and prioritizing programs and then looking at cost controls and and trying to make the best with what we have because you know we just don't have the ability to provide a lot of new taxation because we're our property tax rates are are capped and um it's pretty difficult to for a local government to increase it so we all have to kind of tighten our belts and and do the right thing financially state government seems to be just hungry and hungrier for more and more of your 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 dollars exactly. in some way. And a quick question before we go um again regarding the the transit tax you know portland is thinking about toll uh bridges and everything and so uh has there been any talk that you're aware of about well first of all why they need it if they're going to do this tax and secondly any talk about uh bringing tolls into our area I haven't heard any discussion of tolls in our area. Um and I guess the tolling is about paying for specific projects, but part of it also I think is there's just a desire to toll vehicles is you know sort of the whole anti-car crowd, you know, wants to have vehicles pay more and more of their they feel like for some reason they're they're subsidized um and they want you know, people to pay more and more of the cost of roads directly, and, uh, and whether they whether they need the money or not, that's just you know one of the big desires. Well, we're running out of time here on the Bose Nose Show. Um, we'll be. Day, sorry, we got a little bit of a late and and clunky start, and um, we'll be back. Two weeks from now, live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Great week and have a great Independence Day.